This sermon was preached by Ed Moore, head pastor of North Shore Baptist Church in Bayside, Queens. Ed is one of the founders of Doctrines of Grace Church Planners. North Shore Baptist Church has planted five churches since 2005. You can find more sermons from this series and many others at www.ns-bc.org. Please feel free to distribute this sermon to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Father in heaven, if what I am about to preach is true, if it is correct, if it is accurate, if it represents your word, if it represents your heart, I pray, Lord, that it would take deep root in our lives. And I pray that it would change us. And I pray, Lord, that we would never be the same. Lord, I offer this prayer with fear and trepidation. Lord, very, very desirous to be accurate when handling the Word of God, to cut a straight path, to rightly divide the Word. And so, Lord, I pray that I would be empowered to do that this morning for your glory. And may Jesus Christ be praised, for it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, by now you ought to be able to say it in your sleep. Paul is writing a letter that is intended for a church who has turned against him. He's writing a letter to a church that has been negatively influenced against him. We call that letter 2 Corinthians. Uh, The influence came from apostles, false apostles, who infiltrated the church and they spoke ill of Paul. And in order to reestablish his credibility, he writes a rather lengthy description of what authentic Christian ministry really looks like. And do you see the strategy that he is doing? that he is using here. If he can explain what a ministry and what a minister really does, and then they can compare that with what he himself does. And so he's explaining what true Christian ministry is. He spends a good bit of time spelling out the fact that true, authentic, real, Christian, genuine ministry is empowered by the Holy Spirit. And then he goes into a section where he talks about the fact that true ministry is often accompanied with pain and suffering and sometimes even death, which puts this all in an eternal perspective. And in light of that, Paul says, therefore, we make it our aim to please him, knowing that we shall all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, with that judgment in view, pay close attention here. Paul works really hard to persuade the Corinthian Christians in this letter to stop listening to the false apostles and to start listening to him. Why? Well, Paul says you should do this because of my commitment to God and my commitment to you. And that commitment is real, it is solid, it is genuine because of Christ's love for me. In other words, because of the gospel, which is of first importance. The love of Christ, Paul says, controls me. It motivates me to stop living for myself and to start living for the sake of him who died in my place and rose again. In that context, we read our text today, and we only have two verses that we're going to look at today. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 16 and 17. 
in light of everything that I've just said, verse 16, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. The old has gone, the new has come. When someone is born again, everything changes. Uh, Paul speaks of this radical change in our lives in the book of Titus, the way that we used to be and the way that we are now. Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 5. For we ourselves were once foolish. That was the old, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But the new has come. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Paul even reminds this very congregation of the change that takes place when the new has come. Look back in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. In verses 9 and 10, he tells them the way that they used to be. And then he talks about this change. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That is the old, but the new has come. And such were some of you. You used to be that way, but something changed. Well, what happened? What changed? Well, something new has come. And what is that? But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. We see it played out in the Gospels, do we not? Jesus is walking along and he sees a man by the name of Levi or Matthew. He's a tax collector. He basically is a criminal with a license. And Jesus says to him, follow me. And Matthew gets up, leaves the tax booth, and follows Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. We see it with Zacchaeus. He was a thief. He too was a tax collector. The old is gone, the new has come. Lord, if I have robbed anybody... I will pay back fourfold and look, I give half of my goods to the poor. The old is gone, the new has come. We see it with the demoniac of the Gerardines who was naked in the graveyard, cutting himself who could not be restrained. But the demons were cast out of him into the swine and he comes back to Jesus and he is what? Sitting there clothed and in his right mind. The old is gone, the new has come. Even the thief on the cross in the few minutes of life that he had left, he turns against his only friend on earth. And he says, we deserve to be here, but this man has done nothing wrong. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, the old is gone, the new has come. Behold, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. We see it in played out in the book of Acts. There's a woman in Philippi. Her name is Lydia. And God opens her heart to believe the things that Paul spoke. In that same city of Philippi, we see a demon-possessed girl. The demon is cast out of her. We see Cornelius, the Italian Roman uh, 
a centurion who is converted. We see the Ethiopian eunuch and so forth and so on. But maybe the greatest demonstration of we, that we see of the old being gone and the new coming is in Paul himself on the road to Damascus. He is going there for the purpose of arresting Christians. And he is knocked off of his horse by a great light from heaven and a voice, a voice from Jesus Christ that says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's there that he becomes a new creation. And you've seen it in church history, have you not? John Newton, a man that was a slave trader, becomes a Christian and goes on to write the greatest Christian hymn of all time, Amazing Grace. And you've seen it in your friends, have you not? The guy who wanted nothing to do with Christ or church or the Bible who lived consistently with a foul mouth and was dishonest and sexually immoral and angry with fits of rage and very, very selfish. And today, that is a new creation. You've seen it with your own eyes. You've seen the old pass away and the new come. You've seen it in their vocabulary, their attitude. They no longer sleep around. They have a soft heart of love toward people and toward the Lord. They love to worship. They love to fellowship. They love Bible study. All things have become new. A new mind, a new heart, a new life. Priorities have shifted. And now they seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And it's undeniable. What have they done with your old friend? Where did he go? He looks like himself, but that's not him. He's gone. Behold, all things become new. And probably where you've seen it most vividly is in your own heart. The things of God which once bored you are now interesting for some reason. The things of this world grow strangely dim. And the sin which once captivated you, now you hate. And the God that you wished was dead so that you could live your life without rules, now you love Him and you love His righteousness. What happened? You undeniably became a new creation. Now maybe you don't have all the scripture references to back it up. Maybe you don't know all of the theological terminology to explain it. But like the man born blind in John chapter 9, you can say with 100% certainty, this one thing I know, once I was blind and now I see. There's a lot in this Bible that you don't understand, but with confidence, here's one thing you do know. You know that you are different. You know that the old has gone and that the new has come. I hope that you have experienced that. I I, I hope that what I'm saying is something that you can relate to. I hope that you are genuinely converted. I hope that you have come under deep and profound conviction of sin. And if you have not, I hope that you will accept the remedy, the only remedy, and that is Christ himself. And I hope that you will be granted the faith to believe that he died on the cross for your sins and that he rose from the dead. And I hope that you will be given the grace to repent, that is to turn from your sin. I hope that you will be saved. I hope that you are a new person. I hope that the old is gone and that the new has come. Having said that, and sincerely wishing that for you, 
I don't think that's what Paul's talking about at all in 2 Corinthians 5.17. You know, I love to preach through a book of the Bible, chapter by chapter and verse by verse. Because when you study Scripture, in its context, the context becomes king. The context is the chief factor in interpreting the intended meaning of the chapter. What does 2 Corinthians 5.17 and the new creation mean in this context? Well, remember what I said earlier. Paul just finished contrasting himself with the false apostles who infiltrated the church at Corinth. In verse 12, they are said to be those who boast about outward appearance. In other words, they had their official letters of commendation, their diplomas, their certificates. They were well studied in rhetoric and philosophy. They accentuated their value by demanding pay for their services. They look good. They sound good. And if you have any doubt as to whether or not they are good, all you have to do is ask them and they will tell you about themselves, they will extol their own virtues. That's the context here. And at the same time, these men are slandering Paul. They're accusing him of being weak and inarticulate with no charisma and no credentials. And as I said earlier, Paul is reminding them that he himself is a true representative of God. He is motivated by the love of Christ. He doesn't live for himself, but he lives for the one who died for his sake and was raised. Now, with that train of thought, if you think there's something different in the context, please come and talk to me because I don't want to get this wrong. But with that train of thought, in comes verse 16. I think if it wasn't for verse 16, then verse 17 would probably mean everything that I said that it doesn't mean over the last five or six minutes. But we do have verse 16, and we have to deal with verse 16 in order to understand verse 17. And what does verse 16 say? From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. In other words, the gospel, which is of first importance, changes everything. It changes the way, specifically, that we evaluate, that we judge, that we regard, that we assess, and that we size up people. We no longer regard people or judge people based upon worldly, carnal outward human standards. We no longer judge people according to the flesh. We no longer evaluate people based upon their outward appearance and our sinful preferences. But even though we don't do that anymore, Paul says there was a day when we ourselves were so spiritually blind and so spiritually dead that we actually looked at Christ himself and we evaluated him or we regarded him according to the flesh. In other words, there was a day when I was the worst evaluator or regarder of character that there possibly could have been. 
Because to me, Jesus was nothing more than an uneducated carpenter from Galilee who stirred up a lot of panic and disrupted our traditions and made insane claims about being the Son of God and threatened our way of life by aggravating the Roman authorities. And thankfully, when I was evaluating him to the, according to the flesh, thankfully we shut him up on a cross, but then his deranged followers made up a lie that he was raised from the dead and they claimed that he is still alive. And so I did what was best for the glory of God. I used my influence to arrest and to imprison and to torture and to execute Christians. When I regarded Christ according to the flesh, that is where it led me. But I don't see him that way anymore because he revealed himself to me on the road to Damascus and now I see him differently. Now I see him as Lord. Now I see him as Savior. Now I see him as God. We do not regard anyone according to the flesh, even though we used to regard Christ according to the flesh. We do not do that anymore. And so Paul says, I can relate to the way that you judge me. Because I used to be that kind of judge myself. But I am not that way anymore. Why am I not that way anymore? 517. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. In other words, the old way of evaluating ministers and ministries and those who claim to be sent from God has come to an end. Behold, the new way of evaluating or regarding God's ministers and ministries has come. Now, this in no way is to deny that when one is born again, they think and they act and they talk and they give and they love and they sing and they make decisions and they set their priorities differently. They do, we do, that that is all true. I believe everything that I was saying at the beginning of the sermon. I just don't think that you can get that in 2 Corinthians 5.17. His thinking is... Stop being so worldly and stop being driven by the flesh when you evaluate me and when you evaluate the false apostles. If you are in Christ, then it makes sense that you would evaluate me based upon the standards of the Scripture and the Holy Spirit. If you are not in Christ, then it makes sense that you would evaluate me based upon shallow standards. But now... Because you are in Christ, if anyone is in Christ, you should be weighing my ministry in light of gospel content and eternal values and scriptural accuracy and spirit empowerment and motives of love for you and the glory of God rather than by some sort of contemporary notion of what's cool or what's relevant or what works or what carries weight in the eyes of sinful men. In other words, those in Christ can see a substantive difference between a ministry that is empowered by the Holy Spirit and one that is driven by marketing and demographics and appearances and manipulation and charisma and lies. So stop listening to those who merely look good but have no gospel content 
no holy living, no love, no sincere desire to glorify God. Stop listening to the false apostles and start listening to me. I think that's what the verse means. Okay. So, how is it that one's perspective changes? In other words, how do you stop thinking one way and start thinking another way? How do you stop evaluating one way and start evaluating differently? How does it happen so radically and so demonstratively that one can be said to be a new creation? It all comes down to a tiny little phrase, and that is, in Christ. What makes the difference is whether or not one is in Christ. And Paul uses the same metaphor of creation back in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. And he qualifies it back in that verse in the same way. The the, the difference maker here is whether or not you are in Christ. Ephesians 2.10 says, We are his workmanship created for good works. Now that's not what it says at all. It says, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. So if the difference hinges on the reality of being in Christ or not being in Christ, then what I'd like to do is I'd like to take some time today. In fact, I would like to take the majority of our time today. And I would like us to study or to consider what does it mean to be in Christ or what is union with Christ. To be very honest, I've only recently seen the importance of stressing and emphasizing this. So let me put my Christian life into perspective and tell you how I got to where I am today. I have been around the things of God and evangelical Christianity for 55 years, my entire life. There was never a day in my life when I was not in a good church around the Bible and around the things of God. I was born in 1961. I was born again in 1977. There have been several events which have taken place in my life which have developed my thinking and my perspective that have brought me to the place where I am today. For example, I started off as a student at the University of Pittsburgh and unwittingly I took a class in Old Testament. I walked in as a young believer, really not very well grounded in uh, the importance of the inerrancy of Scripture, and I was told from day one that the Scripture is not true, uh, that it is really just a lot of myth and it is a lot of legend. And the evidence was presented to me, and I started to buy the evidence, and I started to believe that there were multiple people who had written the book of Isaiah, and I started to believe that really maybe some of the miracles were just sort of uh, 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 spiritual stories and so forth. I, I, I really was not prepared going in. And I can remember my Campus Crusade for Christ leader, Tom Feethy, came to me, and he sat down and he explained to me, 
the importance of embracing the Bible as the Word of God, and he explained to me inerrancy and infallibility, and that made a profound difference on the way that I lived the rest of my life. Thy Word is truth. And I began to see the foolishness of um, a liberal interpretation of the Scripture which denies its authority. That made a big difference in my life. Fast forward to 1984, I am preparing to go into the ministry and I am introduced to the doctrines of grace, to reformed soteriology, to Calvinism. And I was not raised in a Calvinistic background. And when I came to see in the scripture that man is totally depraved and he cannot save himself and that God before time elected certain individuals to be saved and that Jesus died for those individuals and that the Holy Spirit has called these people effectually to himself through the preaching of the gospel and that those who are saved, once they are saved, will always be saved, it made an enormous difference in my life. Knowing that God is sovereign over all things makes a world of difference. That was a profound shift in my thinking, and it was foundational for how I would live the rest of my life. Fast forward to 2005. I had another crisis experience in a positive direction, and that is when I came to see the preeminence of the gospel, that the gospel is of first importance. I had always preached the gospel, But I never realized until then that the gospel was not only for unbelievers in order to get them saved, but that the gospel was for believers, and that is what was to be preached to us as our motivation, as our drive, as our everything that we do. And I began to see it all over the Bible as if someone came into my Bible in the middle of the night and changed the verses, and I said, where have these always been? They were always there. I just never saw them. Much thanks to C.J. Mahaney and his little tiny orange book, The Cross-Centered Life. That made a profound difference in my family life, in my thinking, in, 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 in every way. It changed the way that I look at the Bible. It changed the way that I look at the Old Testament. I never was able to see prior to that that the entirety of the Old Testament is about Jesus Christ. Search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, but these are they which testify of me. It's all about Jesus. It's all about the gospel. I saw that. How is it that I lived until the year 2005 and did not see these things? The joy that it brought and the joy that it continues to bring. And so after a half of century of of reading the Bible... Is there anything else that I'm not aware of? Uh, Anything that I have a lot to learn about? Is there anything major in the scriptures that I am missing? Well, arrogantly, I thought to myself, pretty much from here out until I die, it's all going to be kind of just fine-tuning. There's nothing really else big that I'm missing. I mean, I've read through the Bible so many times, and I've studied it for so many years. There can't be anything else that I'm missing. My daughter Savannah is a student at Boyce College in Louisville, Kentucky. This past semester, she took a class in theology. And she said to me, 
Daddy, I'm learning some really great things about the doctrine of union with Christ, being in Christ. Now, she tried at various times throughout the semester to engage me in conversation. And I love my daughter, and I love talking to my daughter. And so I would listen to her, and I would lovingly and politely talk to her, and I would try to understand. But the truth of the matter was, she was talking, I just wasn't getting it. She tried to explain it to me, and I tried to understand it, but I just wasn't getting it. It's not that I was denying the doctrine of union with Christ. No, it's not there. No, it's clearly there. It just didn't seem as big as all of these other things. So I would say, well, I understand that we are all in Christ, but the ramifications and the enthusiasm that you have, Savannah, it's just something that I'm not able to grasp. But all the while, I'm asking myself, what's the reason for all these questions, and why does she want to bring this up all the time, and why will she not drop the subject? I'm just not seeing it. I know that we are in Christ, but I think that's just another way of saying that we are saved. But she won't let it drop. She keeps pressing. And finally she says, Daddy, I believe that union with Christ is the most important foundational doctrine in the Bible. And that's where I've had enough. You know, my, these tuition dollars hard at work. That is an overstatement. So Christmas morning, I'm opening my gifts. And I receive a used book from her. One with Christ, an evangelical theology of salvation by Marcus Peter Johnson. And inside there is a note. Outside it says Ed. (laughs) And there's a quote. And it says, we are saved not because of some intrinsic merit in our faith, but because we actually become united to the object of our faith, Christ himself, end quote. Dad, please enjoy what has conceptually been perhaps the greatest blessing of my Christian life thus far. Preach it. I love you. Savannah. So... On Christmas Day, I start to read the book, and I start to read the book with great skepticism. And here's where my skepticism lies. If this whole idea of union with Christ is so important, and if it is so foundational, why is it that it has never been stressed in my 55 years of going to church? Why was it never stressed in any of my classes in three years of seminary? Why is it that in all of the dozens of Bible conferences that I have ever gone to, why has this never been stressed? How is it that in my own personal Bible study that this has never jumped off the page at me? How is it that in all of the dozens of late night theological debates that I have gotten into with people that this has never been a topic of conversation? Why has there never been a concentrated effort emphasis on union with Christ? 
Or maybe there has been, and I just was blind and I wasn't paying attention. But whatever the case, it seemed very odd to me that an 18-year-old girl would make me aware of something that I have missed since Kennedy was the president. So I start to read the preface, and I start to read it with skepticism. And the author opens up the preface of the book by stating how shocking a discovery it was for him as well. So immediately I could relate, but I was not convinced. And I moved on into the introduction, and in the introduction, he nailed me. In this book, on page 15, he says, We are content, more often than not, to refer to the atoning work of Christ, or the work of Christ on the cross, as the basis for our salvation. And I said, that's absolutely correct. And what's wrong with that? He goes on to say, We are in dire need of the reminder that Christ's saving work is of no benefit to us unless we are joined to the living Savior whose work it is. He goes on to point out that Calvin and the Reformers stressed the doctrine of union with Christ, but that contemporary evangelical soteriology, that's just another way of saying what folks in the church today stress about salvation, contemporary evangelical soteriology is different. What we have today is an objective salvation that is focusing only on what Jesus did for us. And it leaves out the emphasis of us being joined to him. He goes on to write, in textbooks, sermons, and classrooms, salvation is often conceived of as the reception of something Christ has acquired for us rather than the reception of the living Christ. In other words, salvation is described as a gift to be apprehended rather than the apprehension of the giver himself, end quote. Now, if you have no idea what I'm talking about right now, I am sympathetic to you. Because Savannah kept trying to talk to me about this, and I wasn't getting what she was saying. But here's what happens when we just look at what Christ did for us, rather than the idea of being joined to him. The gospel becomes what Jesus can do for me. What are the benefits? Grace, justification, eternal life, rather than having Jesus himself. So the work of Jesus gets a lot of press, but his person is forgotten. So Jesus essentially becomes Santa Claus. He shows up in the middle of the night, he brings us gifts, but he's not welcome to stay for breakfast. It's what Johnson calls the danger of, and I quote, Christ for us without Christ with us. And you say, well, that's nice. But is there any biblical support to emphasize this? Paul wrote 13 books of the New Testament. A total of 87 chapters. I was shocked to learn 
that he speaks of union with Christ, uh, with the phrase, in Christ, uh, just like we have in 2 Corinthians 5.17, in Christ, in Christ Jesus, in the Lord, in him, a total of 164 times. That's an average of twice every chapter. By a long shot, it's clearly the most predominant theme in all of Paul's thinking and writing. And then Johnson goes on to point out that all of our salvation benefits, if you read the Bible, have their foundation in union with Christ. If you name anything that we enjoy that Christ has done for us, it is founded on the uh, the fact that we are in Him. Now I'm going to give you a small sample, but this sample will be large enough to make the point that union with Christ is a really important doctrine. <clears throat> Listen, this is new to me as well. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not even a half step ahead of you on this. And, and even now you might be really puzzled. What does this mean, union with Christ, or being joined to Christ, or being in Christ? You can't wrap your mind around it just yet. Don't worry. For right now, regardless of what it means, the only thing that I want to demonstrate this morning is how prominent it is in the Bible. And maybe you are like me, in that you have read these verses before, but you never really looked at it this way. For example... Would you not agree that the doctrine of eternal life is pretty important? I mean, I think everyone would agree with that. What does the Bible say about eternal life? Romans 6.23 For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. Here we go. In Christ Jesus our Lord. Would you not agree that the fact that we are not condemned is pretty important? I would. What does the Bible say about union with Christ as it refers to condemnation? Romans 8.1 There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, union with Christ. How about the doctrine of sanctification? 1 Corinthians 1.2 To those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. What about the fact that we will live eternally and be raised 1 Corinthians 15:22 in Christ shall all be made alive what about adoption how do we get into the family it is because of our union with Christ Galatians 3:26 for in Christ you are sons of God what about the doctrine of election he chose us in him before the foundation of the world Colossians 3.3, your life is hidden with Christ. There's union with Christ in God. Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Colossians chapter 2, verse 12, we are buried with him in baptism. Romans 6.3, all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. Romans 6.5, If we have been united with him, there's union with Christ in death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Ephesians 2, 5. He made us alive together with Christ. Union with Christ. 
Ephesians 5.30, we are members of His body. Colossians 1.27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's all over the place. And I've just given you a brief sampling of this. And I've just given you Paul. I haven't talked about the other authors in Scripture. And the emphasis is not just coming from Savannah Moore and Marcus Johnson. Donald Fairbairn, who's a writer of church history, studied the early church fathers. Arrhenius, who died in 200. Athanasius, who died in 373. St. Augustine, who died in 430. Cyril, who died in 444. And here's the conclusion that he makes about the early church fathers. The general consensus among these early fathers of Christian doctrine was that salvation is, in its most basic sense, a participation in the Son's relationship to the Father through the Holy Spirit. In our union with Christ through the Spirit, believers share in the personal relation and love between the Father and the Son and in the manifold blessings that result. And I quote, Whenever they, that is the church fathers, did write of different aspects of salvation, they made it clear that these aspects hinged on and revolved around participation in Christ. End quote. And now you move on to the, the Reformation. Martin Luther, who is the champion of justification by faith. Here's what Martin Luther writes. By faith, we must be taught correctly, namely, that by it, you are so cemented to Christ that he and you are as one person which cannot be separated, end quote. Martin Luther goes on to say, therefore, faith justifies because it takes hold of Christ and possesses this treasure, the present Christ. Therefore, the Christ who is grasped by faith and who lives in the heart is the true Christian righteousness. What is my righteousness? It is Jesus Christ himself, Christ who is your life. Martin Luther goes on to say, on account of which God counts us as righteous and grants us eternal life. Why? Because we possess Jesus Christ. We move on to John Calvin. And Calvin says this, As long as Christ remains outside of us, all he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value to us. So why, if it is so common in Scripture, and why... If the early church fathers and if Calvin and Luther really believed these things, how is it that this doctrine of union with Christ has become so underemphasized in our day? Johnson suggests four reasons. Number one, he says, because theologians haven't written about it very much in recent years. And when we say recent years, we mean like the last hundred years. Uh, I mean, tell me the truth. You, you go into Christian bookstores. You have. You go to CBD. You 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 look on. You look online. You you go to Bible conferences. You hear preaching on the radio and uh, on on uh, uh, online. 
Do you ever see any books or articles on the subject of union with Christ? Have you ever heard me preach a sermon, those of you that have been here for the last 24 years, have you ever heard me preach a sermon on it? It's just not out there. Johnson goes on to say, another reason why it has been lost in our day and age is because we emphasize the legal aspects of salvation only. How many sermons have you heard which use courtroom illustrations, uh, being declared righteous or not guilty or justified? Now these illustrations are good, they're not wrong. Nor is it wrong to have a heavy emphasis about our legal standing before God. It's just that that's pretty much all it is. That is the only thing that is highlighted. And he's right. Let me illustrate how he is right. How is it that we detect whether or not someone is saved? Well, we ask them that magical question. And that is, if you're standing before God right now and he were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? You can pass that test without making any reference to being united to Christ at all. All you got to do is just explain legally the doctrine of substitution. And I am not against substitution. I'm not denying substitution. I'm simply agreeing with Johnson that we only talk about and look for courtroom language of justification. That's it. Maybe this is the reason why unsaved people slip into the membership of the church. Because they can articulate the gospel, but they don't necessarily have a vital living union relationship with the living Christ. So theoretically, we could get a parrot to speak the gospel, and he could become a member. The third reason that Johnson lists is that, uh, and this is, uh, this is really sad, but this is so true, we don't know church history. We don't know what Cyril wrote. We don't know what Calvin wrote. We don't know what Luther wrote. We don't know the church fathers. We do not know our roots. And number four, Johnson says, the reason that we don't emphasize the doctrine of union with Christ is because We are scared by the language of mystery known as union with Christ. Kind of seems like a nebulous, spooky sort of thing to us and we stay away from it because it's hard to grasp. Johnson writes, This is a failure, however, to distinguish between mysticism and mystery in theology. Modern evangelicals often seem more prepared to embrace doctrines apparently amiable to logic and rational systemization than they do to embrace mysteries of our faith in a state of wonder and confession. In other words, this whole idea of being joined to Christ is, at the end of the day, no matter how much you study it, it's going to be mysterious. How in the world? What does he mean when he says... And we conclude that if Christ died, then we all died. Or I am crucified with Christ. Or Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is a tough concept to grasp. And because of that, Johnson says, we just stay away from it. But whatever the reason, it's time to rediscover this wonderful doctrine that has been there all along. In 1907, Augustus Strong wrote, The majority of Christians much more frequently 
think of Christ as a Savior outside of them than a Savior who dwells within them. End quote. And I am guilty. So, here's what we've done today. We have looked at the notion of new creation from the Bible, all over the Bible, but the fact that it doesn't appear that way in 2 Corinthians 5.17. So we've looked at the common notion of new creation. We've looked at the actual meaning of new creation in the context of 2 Corinthians 5.17. And we have made an observation of how the concept of being in Christ or union with Christ is underemphasized. And the clock on the wall says it's time for me to stop talking. So I'm going to give you three points of application and then we will finish. Number one, if you are in Christ as a new creation, start making evaluations and judgments from an eternal biblical perspective and don't judge according to the flesh or judge according to that which appeals to your flesh. Application point number two, as you read the Bible, do so with a pen in hand and make note of all of the times that it says in Christ or with Christ or Christ in you. And start to notice how prolific the statements in Scripture are which speak of union with Christ. Maybe today we have not fully explained it. I know we have not fully explained it today. I just want you to see for yourself, with your eyes, in your Bible, how prominent this doctrine is. And number three, I cannot endorse one with Christ by Marcus Johnson wholeheartedly. And the reason that I cannot do this is because I haven't read the whole book. Maybe at the end of the book he starts talking about how we're one with Christ because we get abducted by space aliens and are carried out. I don't know where he's going to go with the rest of the book. So I cannot endorse it wholeheartedly. But I do encourage you to buy it and to read it and to to study it and to discuss it among fellow brethren. Because even if Johnson is wrong in his conclusions and definitions about union with Christ, and I don't think that he is, but let's just say for the sake of argument that he is wrong, there are two things that are undeniable. Number one, this doctrine is all over the Bible. And number two, it is underemphasized. So please pray that God will guide us all to better understand and appreciate the doctrine of union with Christ. But, having said that, even more than understanding this doctrine, may the actual joy of being united to our Savior overcome us, that we fall deeper in love with Him than we have ever fallen in love with Him before. I am not one who reads through the Bible who looks for something new and trying to discover something new or something that that, that, that only I can see and that no one else can see. I'm pretty conventional when it comes to the reading of Scripture. But I believe that this is something which has gripped my heart in a way which is new and fresh and I pray that it will grip yours as well the joy of actually being united to Christ who loved us and died for us and rose again for our justification. Father, please help us. We are, we are bad students, uh, Lord. We are dull. Uh, Lord, we are lazy. Uh, Lord, we are dumb. 
And we need your spirit, Lord. We need our eyes to be opened. Lord, we want to understand what it means to be in Christ. And I pray if there's anybody here today who is not in Christ, I pray, Lord, that they would be joined to your Son by faith. I pray, Lord, that they would be saved. And Lord, for those of us who are in Christ, forgive us, Lord, that we have taken this for granted and that we have not explored the depths of this and what it means. Oh, Lord, may we further understand these things so that we might love your Son more. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Doctrines of Grace Church Planners. If you would like to learn about Doctrines of Grace Church Planners or support our church planning efforts in the New York City area, please visit www.dg-cp.org.